John chapter 4. I think a passage most of us know well. If you Bible literate, if you read a word, I, I love a phrase that Andre used yesterday in our, our speaking, Scripture saturated. If we're Scripture saturated people, you recognize John chapter 4 for a, a couple of reasons. And I want us to read together from John chapter 4. And I think sometimes when we read Scripture, I have a little bit of a, a crazy imagination. I'm not like an artist at all. Don't ask me to try and draw something. Every now and again, my kids ask me to draw. The other day, my youngest one, I was helping them. I wasn't preaching, so I went and sat with them in Kitty's church because it, it's really special for them if I do that. And I'm just there when I can once or twice a year. And she asked me to draw a zebra. And I was like, I can't draw a zebra. Fortunately, my sister-in-law was there, there in church with us, and she's a professional artist. So I just shifted the paper across, and I, I said to my daughter, for that, you've got to ask Tanya Haneri. She'll draw you a zebra. And suddenly, she was drawing zebra for all of the kids in the class. I can't draw. I'm not an artist like that, but I do have a crazy imagination. And sometimes when I read Scripture, I want to encourage all of us to turn on your imagination when you read Scripture. I did a, a series a while ago where we were reading through the book of Acts, and we were just learning from the book of Acts just things that were normal within the church, that should be normal within our churches. And I started every one of those messages just with a crazy story. I just took one passage from the book of Acts and just spent five or ten minutes or a crazy story and just had us think, what is actually happening in these stories? Because we read them like we read a novel or a book, and we just page through it and we don't stop to just think for a moment, what if we were in their shoes? I mean, there's one crazy, there are many crazy stories. One of them in Acts that I'm reminded of now is Peter is in jail. He prays and worships and the Holy Spirit comes and an angel comes and an angel lets him out. And that's a whole crazy story by itself. And then he goes and knocks on the door where the church was praying and they were praying for him. So he's knocking on the door of the house and a servant girl comes. She asks, who's there? Peter says, it's Peter. She runs back inside. She doesn't open the door. She leaves him outside. She runs back inside and she tells sort of the adults and the non-servant people, Peter is at the door. They say, no, it can't be Peter. He's in jail. It must be his angel. Crazy, okay? I don't know about you. When was the last time an angel knocked on your door? I don't know what your reaction is when you think an angel is knocking at the door. Do you know what their reaction is? They forget about them and they carry on praying until the angel knocks again and they remember, oh, wait, there's an angel at our door. We should probably go open up for the angel because he wants to come in. And then they open up the door and it's Peter, not the angel. So they were surprised. They were a little bit surprised that this isn't actually an angel. This is Peter. I don't know about you. When I'm expecting, a P when it's an angel, I'm going to be surprised. They're surprised when it's not an angel. That's just a crazy story right there. And John chapter 4 is one of those crazy stories that many of us know well. And the passage perhaps isn't so new. It starts with Jesus who knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Even though Jesus himself, I picked the Bible with the smallest font in my cupboard when I came down. Jesus himself didn't baptize them. His disciples did. So he left Judea and return to Galilee. And don't have time to dig into that too much, but there's a really important message for all of us who are leaders. That when you step into an environment where there is an existing leadership structure, they hate letting go of their power. 
And here's Jesus in this moment. There's been this conflict. He's been baptizing more people than John, and the Pharisees are not happy. And what is Jesus' response? He says, for a time and a moment, I'm just going to step out and take a break. I need to get away from all of this contention, all of this fighting, all of this uncomfortableness. The Pharisees and I are not getting along, and they're even more upset now because my ministry is really flourishing. So he he steps away from there. He's getting back to Jerusalem. He's not letting the people go. He just, his spirit needs a break. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. The first key thing that I, I want us to see from this story is here is Jesus. He's had a, a long day's walk. He's been walking all the way from Jerusalem. He's come to Sychar, and he's tired. He's tired. You know, as we go through life, sometimes we'll feel bad when we get tired. We feel that we're not allowed being tired. And yet, here comes Jesus, and guess what? He is tired. It's okay being tired. Sometimes when we think of Jesus, we think like, I did a little, but I see Superman is sleeping at the back there. And sometimes we think that Superman and Jesus, Jesus was the Superman type of person. He, I remember in, in church, and it, I don't know if it, I can't remember if it was explicitly said like this, but it's definitely what I learned and what I experienced, was that all of the things Jesus could do on this earth, he could do because he was Jesus. And I'm not Jesus, so I can't do them. I can't do them because I'm not Jesus. Jesus doesn't get tired. Jesus is just perfect human being. But you know what? He was a human just like you and me. My life changed dramatically. I remember the day I was reading a book and this thing dawned in my, it was like this revelation moment that Jesus did everything that he did here on this earth. He did in his humanity as a human anointed by God, which is exactly why you and I can do it too. He didn't come to be this superman to show us what you and I could never do. He came to be the perfect human to show us exactly what you and I are meant to do. And here is Jesus, tired. So what does he do when he's tired? He comes and he sits wearily by the well. Throughout Scripture, we see a lot of Jesus and amongst big crowds. And we see Jesus, in a sense, the extrovert. Jesus flourishing, and there's multitudes everywhere where he's going. But I think sometimes when we see Jesus, we see Jesus, the introvert. This is one of those moments, and I think those of us who understand temperament and that part of psychology a little bit, extrovert and introvert has got nothing to do with whether we like big or small groups or anything like that. It's how do we recharge? Where do we get our strength from? An extrovert typically is somebody, when they need to rest, they need people around them. They get their strength a little bit from the outside. Introverts are those of us, and I'm an, very much an introvert in this sense. When I need to rest, I need to be alone. I get my strength when I'm alone. And most of us are, it's not sort of one end of the scale or the other end of the scale. There are obviously poles, but there's a scale. And psychologists speak about in the middle of ambiverts. Most of us are probably a little bit extrovert, a little bit ambivert. And Jesus was exactly that. We see exactly because we look what happens here. He sat wearily beside the well about noontime. This is in the middle of the desert. This is hot. 
Noontime, it's an important time of day. We'll see why in a moment. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. We'll look at this conversation now. He was alone at that time because his disciples had got into the village to buy some food. He's alone. He's weary. It's noon. It's deserty type environment. It is hot. He's by himself. There's nobody else by the well. And what does he do? He sends the 12 away to go and buy food. He says, hey, guys, go and look for a Rockamamas or a Kentucky or a McDonald's or something. And, and bring me. I'm just going to wait here by myself. I'm tired. I'm going to rest. Sometimes the most powerful ministry opportunities in our lives come at inconvenient times. Jesus has created a space here for himself to be alone. He doesn't want to be around people. If he wanted to be around people, he could have gone with his 12 disciples into the city, and there were going to be lots of people. He chooses to be by himself. He wants to rest. Sometimes our most important and most powerful ministry opportunities come at inconvenient times. And here is Jesus at an inconvenient time. He's at a well, just a little bit of background. There were a number of wells closer to the village of Sychar itself than this well. This well was a little bit removed. Now it is noon, the heat of the day in the desert. And a woman comes to draw water. There's a lot of history to this woman. There's a, a lot of background but in that, there's so much of the love of God that gets demonstrated. I'm going to be honest, for a very long time, I, I read this story and I read the account, and we're going to see now, this is a crazy conversation. This conversation, it doesn't make sense. And I remember often, I, and in a sense, I understand why it doesn't make sense now. I'll share with that with us a bit as we carry on. But I re remember reading this for a long time, and it would be like some of the conversations I have with my kids. You know, you have this whole conversation and the kid leaves and you're like, what did we even say now? I have absolutely no idea except that they seem happy and they're gone, so I'm happy right now. And I know no other parent ever feels like that. You know, sometimes you have these conversations and you're like, what did we just say to each other? This is one of those conversations. And sometimes when I read scripture, I read that and I'm like, God, I have no idea what just happened there. And you know what? That's okay. You allowed sometimes reading Scripture, often reading Scripture, and saying, God, I actually don't understand that. I have no idea what just happened here. And over time, God begins to give us glimpses. So here's this woman by herself, noonday, comes to draw water far away from town. The woman was surprised. She was surprised that Jesus spoke to her. For Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. You will remember or have heard of the, the Good Samaritan. It's interesting for me how the Good Samaritan has become a figure of speech that we use to speak about anybody who does good. That's a Good Samaritan. If you read the account, the Good Samaritan was a lot more than that. Here was a man, a Jewish person. You see, what had happened is the Samaritans were quasi-Jews. You had the Jews who were, in the Jews' eyes, God's chosen people. They were holy. They were perfect. They were clean. They were washed. There was this, at that stage at least, a pride in their nation, an unholy pride in their nation. And then there was the Gentiles, the dirty, the pig-eating, the ungodly, the far from God. And then there was this 
funny nation, the Samaritans, stayed in Samaria. Because they were Jewish by religion, but they were not Jewish by ethnicity. They did not have Jewish blood flowing through their veins. And the Jews didn't quite know how, what to do with them. So the Jews just said, well, we have nothing to do with them. We, and he, she says that Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. And so there's this man who has been attacked by robbers, left for dead on the side of the road. And first the righteous, the priest, the holy comes and he sees the unclean man lying on the side of the road, a Jewish person. So what does he do? He walks on the other side of the road so he doesn't get defiled by the guy who's bleeding. First two Jews like that come past. This is the story that Jesus tells. And then a Samaritan comes, the one that's meant to have nothing to do with any Jews. And the Samaritan extends grace and he comes and he bends down. And at great cost to himself, he helps the Jewish man recover. And then Jesus asks this crazy question. Who would you say was neighbor to that man? That went against the entire political, socio-political socio agenda of the day. That our neighbor, my Samaritan, could not be a neighbor in their, in their eyes. His neighbor could not be a Samaritan. Jesus says, maybe if that's the one that's extending grace towards you, that's the one to whom you should be neighbor, and that's to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That was a hard message to speak to a Jewish people. And here's the Samaritan woman. So there are two things about this woman that makes her untouchable to Jesus. Firstly, she's a woman. You see, Jews would never speak alone to a woman if it wasn't their own wife. And secondly, Jews would have nothing to do with a Samaritan. And here steps Jesus into the life of a Jewish woman. I wonder who the people in your life are that you're not meant to speak to. The people that you're not meant to be involved with. Perhaps the security guard in the gate on the way to work. He's there and he's doing his job, but, but I'm not really meant to interact with him. I know in East London this doesn't happen, but... In Gauteng, there's some families who this part of the family is not allowed speaking to this part of the family. We don't speak to those fanamervis. I don't actually quite know exactly why, but somewhere our great-granddads, granddads, they had a fallout. I think they didn't, couldn't decide what color they wanted to paint the door. I don't actually know what happened. All I know is this part of the family doesn't speak to that part of the family. Some of us in our lives, we have people that we're not meant to speak to. One of the things that Jesus came and deliberately did is he broke down walls and he built bridges. If we're going to imitate Christ, let's be bridge-building people. Let's step away and even if, we're meant, if it means we're going to become unpopular because we're not meant to be speaking to those people, imagine if we build a bridge into their life, a bridge of grace, a bridge of hope. Extend an arm and say, I'm, I'm probably not meant to speak to you socially or economically or whatever it may be, but the love of Christ compels me. I'm going to build a bridge. I'm not going to let social norms allow walls to be erected in our midst. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. So she says to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Double whammy there. Why are you asking me for a drink? In other words, why are you even talking to me? And that's pretty normal. And then the conversation gets crazy. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you'd ask me 
and I would give you living water. I want to think for a moment, you go to gym or exercise or whatever you are, it's hot and you're thirsty and you walk up to the person sort of at the drinks counter and you say, listen, can you give me a drink? And they say, well, you're not really meant to be here. You're not meant to ask me. Or you're working behind the counter rather. They come ask for a drink. And you say, listen, you're not really meant to ask me for a drink here. And then they reply, but if you knew who the gift of God, the gift of God and who it was who asked you for a drink, then you would ask me for water and I would give you living water. I don't know how you would respond. I would be, you're a freak. That's just a weird, this is the last thing that she's expecting. This, is a, this conversation doesn't make sense. She goes, he asks her for water. Then she says, you're not meant to talk to me. And he says, but if you knew who it was talking to you, you'd ask me for water. What's her response? She laughs a little bit. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. Keen observation because he just walked all the way for Jerusalem. He's sitting there probably under a tree, quiet, by himself. She's come with a rope and a bucket. And this well is very deep. You're obviously a stranger. You don't know how it works. So you're not going to give me living water. This well is deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. I want, to imagine you, I want you to imagine for a moment you're having this conversation. I wonder how you would respond. This guy first says, give me water. You say, I'm not meant to talk to you. And then he says, but if you knew who it was asking you for water, you'd be asking me for water, and I would give you living water. And you look around and says, you don't have a tap. The water's on my side. There's no water there. How are you going to give me any water? And then he says this, anyone who drinks this water will become thirsty again. It be but those who drink the water I give, will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. That sounds very deep and spiritual, but it's weird. This is not the conversation she was expecting. You see, what most scholars believe is this woman came in noon in the heat of the day to this well removed from the rest of the town because she wasn't allowed at the wells closer to town. She wasn't allowed there at the peak times. Most women would have come earlier in the morning or late in the afternoon when it was cooler. This woman comes at a time when she knows no one else is going to be there. She was an outcast from society. We'll see a little bit later why that is. She has to go further than the rest of the town to go and get water. And the reality is every time she walks from wherever she stayed to this well of water, she's walking past the other ladies and their groups and the town. And they're looking at her and saying, there goes that woman again. Every time she has to walk to where she's going, she is so aware of the shame upon her life. She is so aware that she doesn't fit. She is aware that she's been cast out. She's aware that she's unloved. She's aware that she's not welcome. Her walking here every day is a reminder that she is not good enough. And then watch her response when Jesus says, I've got a different type of of water for you. And this is a special water because if you drink this water, you're not going to thirst again. And watch what she says here. Please, sir. Suddenly her tone changes. Give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. But watch this last bit. And I won't have to come here to get water. I won't have to come here to get water. 
I won't have to daily remind myself of the shame and the pain and the hurt in my life. I won't have to walk past all of the other women collecting water or sitting in their houses and they see, here comes me by myself again. I love how God has a way to speak to you and to me in ways that resonate with our hearts, but nobody else understands. You see, this is the type of conversation. If she went back to the people around her and she relayed this conversation, they would have said, I've got no clue what you just said. It's exactly the same when God speaks to us sometimes. Sometimes God speaks to us about some of the most powerful and most profound things. And we go to the people around us and we share it with them and they don't share our excitement. And guess what? It's because they don't understand it. They don't get the pain, the hurt, the optimism, the dream that God has a way to put his finger on. And here Jesus comes and he sees the hurt, the incredibly deep wound in this woman's life. And he puts his finger on that wound. He says, I know about that. I know what it costs you to come here every day. I want to encourage you this morning that God wants to speak to you in ways that only make sense to you. You don't have to share it with everyone else. You're welcome to. And you know what? If they don't understand it, that's okay. Because they don't understand the hurt and the pain and the shame that you may be carrying with. They don't understand the dream in your heart that's been there forever. And suddenly, God is giving you a promise. Suddenly, God is beginning to speak to you about the dream and you get excited. You want to jump up and down and run around the town and go crazy and everybody else says, oh, it seems okay. God has a way of speaking a language that only you will understand. He speaks in pictures that only you understand. You see, if he had this conversation with anybody else, it wouldn't have meant nearly what it meant to this woman. She says, I don't want to come here again. I don't want to revisit my hurt and have it stare in my face every single day. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands. You aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Jesus says, that shame that you want to stay away from. You've said you don't want to come here to collect water every day. And inside of you, you have a reason why you don't want to come here. Jesus says, I know about that reason. I know about the hurt. I know about your history. The other women speak about you. They laugh at you. There's a history of broken relationship. You are not... This city's pride and joy. You're not the poster woman for our city. You're not the first one that we want to introduce to special guests. As a matter of fact, the further you stay away, the better. She's shunned by her community. She's not welcome there. Her coming to this water pot every day reminds her of that shame. Jesus comes and at first he says, I've got water for you. And she says, that's going to be so precious for me because you sitting here, you probably don't understand what it means for me to come here but I know what that means. And then Jesus goes a step further and he says, I know what it means. Five husbands, the one you're with now is not even your husband. I don't know where you are and what you're hiding and what you think is not good enough. But you know the crazy thing about this woman? If anybody was disqualified to be a minister of the word of God, it was this woman. Can you imagine this woman coming into church here today saying, listen, I really want to share. Well, who are you? Well, I used to have five husbands. I've divorced all of them. I'm living with a guy now. I'm not a, his wife. We're not even married. That, 
you know, most of us would look at that and say, well, probably sort your life out first. Jesus steps in to her life. He changes everything. And then something so precious happens because it happens to me and I relate to this. Jesus gets personal. He says, I know you. What's her response? Probably what your response and my response is. She gets religious. I don't know if you've experienced that. You're sitting in your quiet time. You're praying. You're having this moment and God says, Philip, I want you to phone your mom and say you're sorry. Or I want you to go and do this for your brother. Or I want you to go to the security guard outside and give him your lunch. God gets personal. He begins to press that button that's so close to our heart. And what is your response? Oh, God, can we pray for the people in Nepal? God, no, we, we can't worry about the security guard now, God. There are people in Nepal who need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Can we, can we get religious around that? And we use the religion as a, a screen to deflect when God gets too close and too personal to our hearts. What is that thing that when the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you about, you need to deflect from? She needs to deflect from the shame. And how does she deflect? Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship? So they're worshiping the same God. They're just not quite sure about where we should worship. But she's kind of missing the whole point here. Yet Jesus humans her. Jesus humors her. Humors her. Believe me, dear woman. The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship here or there, the Father at this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. This is actually quite a mean thing he says. While we Jews know all about him. Salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. And most of us have probably heard teachings around this. And it's a really important passage. And we don't have time to get into that today. But the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And yet I love her response. A little seed of faith that somewhere has dropped into her heart. She says, I know the Messiah is coming. The one who is called Christ, watch this, when He comes, He will explain everything to us. Isn't that a powerful statement? Here's a Samaritan. Jesus has just told her, you guys don't know anything about following me. Jews, they know because they've got this whole long history. You guys don't know. She says, I know I don't know. But I know one day a man is coming and he will teach me everything. And then watch this. I am that Messiah. The first person in Scripture that Jesus reveals himself to as the Messiah is this woman. First person. And then it gets really awkward. Just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman they didn't even know. Probably it was a Samaritan woman. If they knew it was a Samaritan woman, they would be even more shocked. And you can almost see Peter and John like eyeballing each other. Judas especially, he's upset about this. Thomas doesn't believe it because he doesn't believe anything. They're like, do we say something? I'm not going to say anything. Well, let's just keep quiet. And Jesus, here's a McDonald's, you know. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village. I love that. Here is a woman who has had an encounter with Jesus. She leaves 
everything and runs back to her people with a message. We're going to get to that now. Remember, this is the woman who most of us would seriously think twice about even allowing into our churches. If anyone was disqualified, she was. The woman left her job beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And then in this whole story, I think verse 30 is the greatest miracle of this whole story for me. Here is a woman, an outcast of her society. She's not allowed at the watering points close to town. She runs to town. She says, guys, come and see. There is something crazy going on at this well outside of the water. Oh, well outside of the water. This well outside of the village. Something crazy. And for me, the greatest miracle happens right in this moment. So the people came streaming from the village to see him. They came, they listened to an outcast woman that had no respect in the town, yet something happened when she was willing to step out and say, come and see, and the Holy Spirit moved on that, and the village came streaming out to meet him. I wonder in your life as you're standing here or sitting here this morning, what are the reasons that you have why you can't go back to your people? What is the shame that's holding you back? What is it that says to me, I'm disqualified? I'm not talking about church leadership. Scripture is very clear that in terms of church leadership, there are very key character elements that need to be in place. I don't think this woman's life was totally sorted out. I'm totally convinced that if you'd visited a year later, her life would have looked markedly different. But that's not the point. The point is in her mess, in her shame, in the midst of all of her darkness, she experienced something. And she ran to a whole village and she simply said something, come and see. Not come and see how my life has sorted out. Not come and see I have all the answers. Not come and see me. Come and see a man who was there in your life that you're looking around and you can say up to them, come and see. I'm experiencing something. Something in my heart is changing. Everything is a little bit different. Come and see. Just come with me, and you can come back here just now, but just come just for a moment. Just come and catch a glimpse, because something's happening in my heart, and maybe, just maybe, how he's begun to put my heart back together, maybe he can do the same for you. Can you imagine this church? I love churches. I love the houses of God. I love seeing people like you filling a place of church, and you know what else I love? I love empty chairs, because every one of these empty chairs represents somebody in one of our lives who needs to come and see. Somebody who could be sitting here, somebody right now whose life is falling apart, somebody who's walking around with hurt and shame and pain, somebody who's losing hope in life, somebody who's confused, somebody who needs a river of living water to spring up from the inside of them, somebody who you could go to and say, listen, I don't have all the answers, but I found somebody who might be your answer. Don't you just want to come and see? And this woman, with all her shame, all her pain, ran back. And the greatest miracle is that the town listened. They should have no reason to listen to her, except that they did. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. Jesus replied, I have a kind of food of which you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Jesus explained, my nourishment 
comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing His work. I hope and pray that every one of you and every one of us here knows something about the food that Jesus is speaking. He looks at them and He says, you know nothing about this food. I'm telling you, just after Jesus left and Peter and James and John began to minister, they knew about this food. The food, the nourishment that comes from doing the will of God. Do you remember Jesus went and sat there because he was tired and weary? It was the heat of the day. He'd been walking a long time. He was hungry. He sent his disciples away to get some food. And here is this encounter with women. They bring back the McDonald's. And he's like, I don't even need that right now. I am so full of something that you don't understand anything about yet. My prayer for you as a church is that you would begin to understand even more than you already do that food, that nourishment that comes from doing the will of God. I'm not saying there isn't a time to be tired. I'm not saying there isn't a time to rest. Scripture's full of that. But too often we say, God, I can't, God, I can't reach into that person's life. God, I can't share now. God, I can't do this. I can't serve there. I can't be in that band. I, I can't, I can't, I can't because I don't have the time, the capacity. I'm too tired. I, I need to relax. There's merit for all of that. We need to steward our time, definitely. But that has to be measured in the light of there is a nourishment that comes from doing the will of God. The nourishment comes from, you know, the saying, four months, he speaks about the harvest, the harvest is plentiful, and, and all of that. And then I want us to close with the very last bit in, in this passage from verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. See, first they come and they believe because of the testimony in our lives. I experienced something, and they say, well, if you've experienced something, that must be God. They believe the Holy Spirit breathed on that invitation. They began to believe. But then the precious thing happens. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. And now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. See, Peter, many, many months later, maybe even years later, has an encounter where Jesus says to him, but Jesus, Peter, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says that beautiful, beautiful peace. And on this truth, on this rock, you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of the truth that I am the Son of God, I will build my church. And 2,000 years later, he is still building his church. And I so love that we get to be part of it. But here is a whole town who months, if not years beforehand, could look at each other in the, side, in the eye and say, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, Peter was behind the curve. These guys were the first to experience it. If we'd be willing to step out just to say, come and see. Yes, at the beginning they may come because we've said. But God is so faithful to meet them himself. 
And you know what happens when he meets them themselves is what happened in your life and what happens in my life. Now I believe not because of you have said, but because I have heard. Because I have seen. Because Christ himself has stepped in to my life. I want to encourage you. Christ wants to do that the same in your life. Three questions I have for you this morning. Who are the people that God is calling you to build a bridge towards? Historically, relationally, for whatever reason, there is a wall that has been built between you and some people. Who are those people that you will step out and build a bridge to? Secondly, what are the reasons that you think disqualify you? Why do you think you are not allowed? Why can't you go out and say, come and see, come and see, come and see? Why aren't you walking around telling every person you see, I've experienced something in my life and I would so love for you to experience the same. What are those things that say to you that you can't do that? Bring them before the Lord and He's going to deliver you from that. Because it didn't hold this woman back and it shouldn't hold you and me back. And thirdly, the open chair next to you, in front of you, behind you, who is somebody that even in this week you can go to them and say, On Sunday, we've got a service. Tonight, we've got a service. Don't you want to come and see? You don't have to stay. You don't have to be here forever. I just want you to come and see what I've seen. If you like it, stay. If you don't like it, run away. But would you just at least come and see?